Hello listeners and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast. I'm Simon Sapper. As we have a training course run by the National Union of Journalists to thank for bringing this podcast series into being, it was a great pleasure and entirely appropriate that Becky Wright and I recently spent some time in the company of Michelle Stanistreet, the NUJ's General Secretary. Now, what starts out as a discussion about the NUJ's equal pay campaign at the BBC, very important in itself, of course, spills quickly over into looking at the role of the BBC itself as our premier public service broadcaster. This insight into how the BBC works from a journalist's perspective and why we are right to expect higher standards from the corporation than other media outlets is both precious and revealing. But, you know, in presenting these podcasts, you sometimes get thrown a curved ball from left field, something you, you don't expect at all. And when Becky and Michelle started exchanging their experiences of, of being working mums, from maternity leave to work-life balance, well, all I can say, listeners, is it's arresting and deeply personal stuff. Working mums will, I think, be able to empathise with what Becky and Michelle have to say on this, and I think take heart from having two senior union leaders who get it as an issue. And blokes, well, whether parents or not, I think blokes will want or possibly need to listen to the clearest description of how and why this is an ongoing challenge for our movement that I've heard in a very long time. Okay. <laughs> well, listeners, Becky and I are here in the head office of the National Union of Journalists, my union, I should say. Very pleased to have sitting in front of me my General Secretary, Michelle Stanistreet. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. The thing that's in the news at the moment uh, about journalists, about the NUJ, is, is Carrie Gracie and kind of the war is over announcement that the BBC have, have coughed up all her back pay to make sure she was on pay parity with her male colleagues. And I know the NUJ was very much involved in Carrie's case. Is the war over, Michelle? Is, is there now, are we now on the cusp of a new era of gender pay equality? It was brilliant news um, for Carrie's case to be finally resolved because that's been a high-profile and challenging process for her personally. I would say that in the time um, that our work on equal pay has been taking place over the last few months, there's been a massive change in approach by the BBC to this issue. The, this is a, the end of that particular battle is a really significant shift, but no, the, the, the war isn't over. There's so much more to do. There's still stuff to do at the BBC. The joint unions have been negotiating really hard to both address all of the cases that exist. We've had 181 NUJ members that we've been representing, all at different stages of processes. Some of those have been sorted out, which is fab, but there's many more still to resolve. But at the same time as dealing with all of those individual cases, we've been looking at the structural problems that exist and trying to set in place changes to resolve those problems and to make sure the BBC doesn't get into this kind of mess again in the future. Because I think this was the thing that sort of struck me, the, the two things about the Carrie um, Gracie case, which is that very easy to think that this is done, it's it's solved, but also to, to underestimate the structural reasons as to why workplaces and industries get to that and that actually it's not about just winning the legal case it's all it's trying to stop it from happening in this in the first place could you give us a little bit of context about you know the world of journalism and kind of how you know kind of what what is the context for these kind of equal pay cases and this kind of equal pay work yeah because I mean I think I think a lot of people have been really shocked at all of this lid being lifted off the BBC if you like and kind of seeing what's been happening in it in its murky crevices in terms of how it treats its staff and pays them 
But in reality, I mean, the BBC should be held to account by higher standards than anyone else. It's our public service broadcaster and it should lead the way. The reality is that the media industry is dreadful when it comes to the gender pay gap and equal pay. And I think that's partly because, you know, it's, it's largely privately owned rather than any kind of transparent pay structures in most organisations. Particularly in national newspapers, there's been just a kind of Wild West approach taken over decades, uh, even in places where there's been a collective bargaining agreement. It, it hasn't meant that there's been genuine transparency or fairness in, mm. in, in approaches to pay. And it's a culture you know, that often can be quite macho. It can often be those who shout loudest get rewarded more than anyone else you know what what is deemed to be talent you know what, what you know what people will pay to stop somebody from fleeing to a rival publisher all of those kind of things in the past particularly have left a, a big legacy of problems i think so you've got people on kind of quite extreme differentials yeah. of salary mm. um, but it's, it's also it's also secrecy you know which we found to be quite a, a prevalent issue and I don't think that's the media industry alone but you know trying to get people to open up and talk about pay is quite a big challenge and what we found at the BBC that actually loads of the women who'd come forward there was quite there was a pattern to a lot of their experiences so a lot of them had actually raised the issue of pay with their managers and different bosses that they've had at the BBC at different times and they'd been fobbed off they've been you know lied to actually in in lots of instances and kind of told well no you are on a kind of footing with you know you know blokes who are doing like a similar or same jobs you know sometimes blokes that they've been sat on the same sofa with presenting you know not just random uh, male colleagues in other parts of of what was a massive corporation and but but they felt quite you know that they felt they felt kind of belittled in the process. They felt like they really didn't have anywhere to go with it. So, so even women who tried at different times in the past to, to address it hadn't. And, and what, what, the, what the publication of the high earners list at the BBC last year did was kind of expose you know, those very high earners at the BBC. And in doing so, the lack of women, the lack of black mm. faces was mm. so obvious to mm. everybody. Mm. And it's just set in chain a whole kind of series of events that have taken place since then. And what, what, what that has enabled us to do is to really build momentum and use yeah. the anger and outrage that a lot of people have, you know, which included a lot of high profile names, which, you know, yeah. absolutely has helped in that process because and it's kept it on the public and political agenda, I suppose. But it's united women at all levels of the BBC in trying to sort this problem out and, and and I think after a few months I mean the BBC did what it always does in the face of a crisis and commissions a report commissions <laughs> a report, spends a load of money it, it didn't need to have yeah. on PwC and Eversheds and actually after yeah, a few what months their of that gets up, actually. <laughs> yeah well and then you kind of like well you know what you could have just come to us we could have sorted it out and you could have saved yourself some cash well at the beginning of this year and, and the BBC will probably say this to you as well they've accepted that actually I've sat in meetings and said you've wasted money on PricewaterhouseCoopers and, and, and PwC's plan has been ripped up and the joint union's work has been effectively adopted over a period of time so yes and we've done that for free if you want something do in our union <laughs> yeah so and, and trying to get them to a position where actually they could come up with a strategy that had a degree of common sense and something mm. that they could stand up and defend mm. as opposed to you know i mean pwc and the like they embed themselves within organizations and kind yeah. of come up with 
something that they think those one those organisations want to hear, yeah. um, which obviously trade unions don't do. Um, so I think there's a lot to learn from that, but it's certainly not it's certainly not concluded at the BBC. But um, the brilliant thing is that it's inspired loads of other work yeah. in other parts of the sector. I mean, the linkages between between the NUJ's campaign, the Me Too stuff, the Like a Lady Doc. Suddenly, you know, gender politics is is is, is mainstreamed in a way that I can't remember it having been for for some years, really, if perhaps possibly if ever, actually. But I'm a bloke, so I wouldn't probably. Wouldn't I was going to say I, I don't know. I think that's been pretty high on my radar for a very long well, time. No, but, so but no, I, I would agree it's been high on the ra- radar of, of of women and women trade trade unionists. Yeah. But it also needs to be high on the radar of men as well. It needs yeah, to yeah. be shoved in men's faces and says, "You, this is an, this is something you can't brush under the carpet and you can't you can't ignore." And I think that's that's kind of. That's kind of ha- happened now, but it, it, well, but it, it, nothing's happened. Nothing's been nothing's concluded, happened, that's true. has it? So, yeah. Because yeah. I think it's 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 really important that the trade union movement try and tries to work to to take these issues and make them industrial organising issues yeah. and make them their yeah. own. Because yeah, yeah. the report that the TUC did, I think, in the autumn of last year on sexual harassment, yeah, so yeah. The way mm. really good do. report. It's a really good report, but its findings were pretty shocking. You know, mm. bugger all women would actually turn to a trade yeah. union for support or help yeah. if they're being sexually harassed at work. And that should be a massive wake-up call collectively to the movement because any working woman in that kind of scenario, their first port of call should be a yep. trade union or their own trade union if they're in one. So I think there was a lot of salutary stuff in there that we need to, you know, people need to reflect on and take action. And also it's about making it, it's all well and good having a bit of a push for a month or a day of the year or you know, a single campaign, actually making that something that's part of the bread and butter industrial work is more yeah. challenging and yeah. that's the challenge we've got to rise And to. about seeing um, it as bread and butter industrial not work an and not just the thing that goes to the women's committee and yeah. it's dealt Quite with right. by the women's committee, that absolutely. it's actually, this is as important, well this is important. It's a, core, it's is, a core issue. Well, if we're turning around and saying, you know, pay, terms and conditions, is the bread and butter is what we do then this is what we do and you can't just close the door on that and it's so it's been these sort of things I think have been great for highlighting it and helping an articulation of why that's important but it doesn't just stop with one particular case and I think we do have to get to grip it's it's not down to one case it's not down to one report it's fundamentally going to have to change some of our mindsets and some of the way in which we operate and and also I think we have to see it as a long-term investment in the union movement as well that that women should, the first poor of course, very much as Michelle said, should have been, I'm going to talk to my trade union, and I, or I'm going to talk to other women, I'm going to find the reps, I'm going to do all of that kind of stuff. And we still haven't done it. As one general secretary said to me once, where are all the women talking about, you know, all of these things? I'm like, they're here, we just haven't gone out to them, to hear them, and to be seen as like a relevant partner in all of this. You know, if you go to your rep and you said, oh, I think I've got an equal pay case and he doesn't think it's important, then well, that, that's it, it's done. Indeed, and the, the worry is it's not just an unfulfilled promise, as, as, as it were. There is a very real risk, especially with that, that sexual harassment sur- survey, that actually the seeds of our own destruction are, are still there and are still kind of germinating and there needs to be a structural kind of change in our organisation and our, our you know the, the dynamics of the, the movement to avoid... The situation that produced the Carrie Gracie and hundreds, thousands of other cases that, that haven't been so her profile coming again. So I wonder, Michelle, if, if, especially given the Carrie Gracie case, 
you've seen an increase in, in recruitment of female members over the last year, year or so, or whether or not you've actually pushed that and targeted that. Yeah, we have. We, we've, we saw a, a significant spike in membership increases at the BBC, which is a highly unionised environment, but you know, there's still people who hadn't yet been persuaded that the unions are relevant or, or, or mean something to them, and, and, and that's changed um, since September of last year, but also broadcasting recruitment um, more broadly. So other broadcasters, very much inspired by the work at the BBC, so lots of cases on equal pay that um, women that came forward after a big push we did through the union. We are also doing quite a lot of proactive work trying to kind of gauge the scale of the problem in some other areas. So doing equal pay surveys and encouraging our chapels to kind of initiate that work. And again, we're seeing membership increases on the back of that activity. So I think it's something, it's a big issue that the whole movement could be working really hard on but it's it is tricky because I mean I, in, even in some of the some of the workplaces where we've been doing proactive stuff you know a lot of these companies who were forced to disclose their gender pay gaps in April and loads of them left, left it for, to the last <laughs> second yeah. you know had woeful figures you know the scale yeah. of the problem in the media sector is pretty bad and all of those same media outlets have been very eagerly slagging off the BBC a few months before then about their problems on gender pay gaps and equal pay and actually in their own backyards they've all got much more significant yeah. problems yeah I mean even, I mean even the ultra friendly if you like Guardian had a, what was it, about a 10% pay, uh, gender, gender pay gap and then there were some organisations like NewsQuest who wouldn't even publish a, a sort of aggregate figure to try and hide the bad news as it were. Because they're, they're, they're hiding in the fact that they're all separate newspaper entities so but actually if you add them all up obviously it's way more than 250 people but yeah it was over 12% at the Guardian, it was almost 20 at the Sun, it was you know, it was significant News UK, 22% overall, over 20% at the Mirror Group. So, you know, some of our friends, or deemed to be friends in the, in the, in the publishing industry as well, it's a, it's a collective problem. So what we've been trying to do is to use it as well, to get in and talk to companies who don't yeah. often want to engage with us and say we want to sit down and work with you to tackle this issue, to come up with a, an action plan that's mm. got teeth, that isn't just kicking it into the long grass some are you know more willing to sit and engage on that than others but equally it's you know we were talking about you know reps and making sure that that's very much a grassroots led responsibility as well and I've been painfully conscious that in some circumstances when I've been talking to activists and reps about this issue they said oh you know no, it's fine you know because the, the, the company's setting up a women's group or there's some women setting up a women's group on the back of this and it's like no you need to make sure it's an NUJ chapel issue you need mm -hmm. the, the committee to actually take this on and make it their own in the workplace you know it can't be seen as something other it has to be seen as something that the NUJ is at the forefront of pushing for change and, and that's a big opportunity but it's a challenge as well. I mean I think the other really interesting thing kind of linking into this one is that as a union you guys have had to deal with such a tumultuous sort of time in the changes of the you know industry the the you know going from print to digital, more freelancers, all of this kind of thing, you know, and it's amazing that you're managing to kind of have this really kind of clear res response. Meanwhile, there is this in sectoral upheaval and people losing their jobs or they're being kind of forced out. And this kind of really gives a voice as well for all of those women 
who become freelancers because the workplace is, is a hostile environment for them, especially once they've had children and they need to can't do the deadline, you know, can't do it in a way in which it is expected of them. It shows a real relevancy uh, of a union in the 21st century, I think, you know, whether you're freelance or whether you're employed, because your rates, how do you determine what rates you're on if you're freelance? How do you, how do you kind of make sure that you're being paid the same as the other freelancers or there is some kind of parity in all of that? How do you enforce notional rights? And, and also, you know, when you've got cases where the employer has said, well, come on, you, you be a self-employed thing and everything will be all all right and we'll all take care of you. And actually, that's just a... Well, actually, you'd be self-employed, otherwise you can't have the gig. Yeah. So. And, and casualisation of work is like being a, it has been a massive trend in mm. um, journalism over the last 15, 20 years, really, which just leads to greater insecurity. And, yeah. you know, other work that we've done on bullying and harassment, for example, in the wider sector becomes an even bigger problem when you've got the barrier of being a freelance because it's even harder to stick yeah. your head above the parapet and say yeah, yeah. there's a problem here because yeah. you're fearful that you just won't get the shifts next week or you won't get any more work from that particular organisation so that's a pretty toxic brew yeah. but you know you're absolutely right about issues facing women you know actually in, in our industry you've seen increasingly over the, the last 15 years say almost parity sometimes with women and men coming into journalism but in terms of getting into positions of seniority that massively drops back you know when a woman's in their 30s or taking decisions about having a family and you just it's it's a very backward environment for companies who still value presenteeism or you know who still don't want to embrace family friendly policies or or flexible working in Mm. kind of any genuine way when I was at the Sunday Express when I was working as a journalist I was the first woman to put in for flexible working after the legislation changed and I was a single mum so I you know on a crappy salary and knew it was going to be really challenging and I was the MOC at the time and mother of the chapel mother of the chapel so my the workplace rep and I put in my application whilst I was still pregnant even though the managing editor was saying well you know hang by you don't need to organize all of this until after you've gone on your maternity leave I said, no, I know it's going to be a nightmare, (laughs) so I'm going to try and get this sewn up before I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm out the door. And eventually I got an arrangement to work from home, specifically on the basis, the manager and editor said, because we feel it's in the proprietor's interest best interest for you not to be in the office <laughs> <laughs> because of your trade union work. I can work. compliment so or what? I was like, well, you know, yeah. I've always said to Matthew, you know, you, you, you pay lip service to flexible work. And he's like, no, Michelle, that's unfair. We don't even pay that. So, you know, you have organisations who pride themselves on being rubbish when it comes to flexible working. And, 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 I, and I think, you know, that, that, that needs a massive step forward. And, and I think more, I think there's going to be big changes in this front at the BBC, which will be really positive. They've been doing a lot of work, kind of engaging staff and others, looking on particular issues and women and progression in the BBC is one of them. They're just reporting on it now. And actually, the BBC does have a responsibility of trying to lead the the rest of the industry in that sector, and it's it's one of its responsibilities under the Charter as well. And I hope they, they actually do more of that and demonstrate that actually not only can you do these things, but actually... 
it, it, it makes life better for everybody mm. in a working environment. You know, if you can accommodate job sharing and, and, and you know more flexibility for everybody, not just women, blokes as well. I mean, I think everybody wants yeah a better work life balance. Yeah, yeah. It, it's know. not that's why it's not just a women's issue. No, it, it is, is a, a trade union issue, and it's a trade union issue, and it's a societal issue. It's it's not. You know, I uh, my partner tried to put in for flexible working at his last job, and the employer just went. Why? Why would you want? Lit the words were. Why? Why do you want to stay at home and help look after the family? You've got a partner for that. It's outrageous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And he went. You have met her. (laughs) 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 Like, do do you not think that? But also, I want to be able to help my. I want to look after my kids. And when he left to get uh, flexible working at the time. And the, the boss turned around and said, you know, I've just realised I've never actually changed a nappy with either my children or my grandchildren. To which then my partner went, you've got grandchildren. Like, it just, because he'd never talk about, like, his family. And that's the thing is, it's, it, if you make these things better for women, you make them better for everybody. And we still have to kind of get to grips with that, I think. And it, and it's just, it is one of those 21st, it, I mean, it is, has always been an issue. We don't want it to always be an issue. But when unions are grappling to think of how we're relevant in a 21st century workplace, this kind of stuff puts us front and centre. And when you get kind of publications like L and The Pool or Vogue, kind of basically, I'm going to magazines, not necessarily newspapers, but, you know, talking about diversity and inclusion and all that kind of stuff and being a feminist kind of publication, fundamentally, being a feminist is being a trade unionist, I would say, because you spend more time at work yeah absolutely and you know and, and I suppose you know you have to kind of lead by example don't you about you, you mm. talking to there about your partner's experience my partner's freelance freelance journalist and, and is actually we've got a 15 month old toddler and he's doing the lion's share of all the childcare. but that has a massive impact on you know his freelance career in that regard and you don't have those rights or entitlements yeah, in the yeah. same way it brings that home to roost but also as a I, I, I don't know that there's been any or other gen, being a general secretary and no. having it was really uh, it was really exciting a, a baby in that way it yeah, felt yeah. kind of quite exposed and I struggled yeah, yeah. I mean when I was first I was thinking well I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to have um, maternity leave but you know that became more of a, actually I absolutely have to have make yeah. sure I do take some yeah, maternity yeah. leave absolutely yeah um, that's I didn't a kind of glass ceiling issue almost isn't it you yeah. know what I could have taken but and, and actually I was working throughout but it, I felt it then actually to be a big responsibility to be seen to be doing it but you know you know the, the trade the union movement has its own foibles and flaws as well like any other environment and it kind of fucks with people's brains I think you know I uh, it's been said to me lots of times as in my kind of progression through the NUJ and the movement about oh, you know uh, a single a woman a single mother can't do that kind of a role or you know a, a, a woman in a, we're not ready for a woman in a leadership position with some you know these are things oh, that activists oh, say yeah. like have you have you really thought about whether it's a good thing for you to maybe want that job because you've got children and and so demonstrating that actually anyone can do these roles if yep. you know if that's what they want to do and. Actually, with most things, you can juggle your life in a way that makes these things vaguely work. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that's been my approach. But it's kind of, it's it's quite salutary when you see what other people's reactions are. Mm. 
Gosh, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I have to say this, and I'm sitting here being embarrassed about my gender here, which is quite right. I, I should be, because, I mean, my, my view is, in the same way you can't leave your civil liberties or human rights at the door when you come, in, come into work, you can't leave your family responsibilities or the other parts of your life at, at the door either and you have to have a holistic approach to, to work if, if, if for example if there if there are pressures at pressures at home that's going to impact upon you at work therefore the idea of a work-life balance is absolutely in the employer and employees interests yeah right and you know that's the way I've tried to live my working life but there is still so much more to do and it takes great bravery by the women who are in this room with, with, with me and and others who don't necessarily seek to have a scrap about these things but find they have to because otherwise Things don't change and things don't, don't get better. And I, yeah, I, I mean, I think we can beat ourselves up about it. And I think it's, sometimes it's right to beat ourselves up about it because we should hold ourselves to a high, a high account. But when you look around the general council or when you look at the, the number of unions both affiliated to the TC and not affiliated to the TC and you see how many women general secretaries there are, it's not enough. But we, but we are doing better than some FTSE 500 companies. But that doesn't get us off the hook with how, you know, we know this in terms of the research that we've done, that, that women come into, just like in journalism, women come into the, the world, into their trade union world as reps 50-50. And yet, when, as further they go up, the fewer women there are, to the extent that there is, I think, 60% of of the branch secretaries type level are men, 40% are women. But when you flip that and you look at non-union employee voice roles, it's completely the opposite way around. Now, I'm not advocating for us to be more like the non-union employee voice stuff, but there is a question then of like, well, how come there's progression in that route but there's not in the other and so this as well as kind of the fundamental questions being asked I think of the NUJ there is that fundamental question being asked of the union movement itself about how we do all of these sorts of stuff as well and and I think that we when a lot of unions did their reporting as well I mean there was a bit of eye-openers there were some ones where I remember thinking god it's not as bad as what I thought it was gonna be but we still I think grappling with what does progression look like? What does flexible working look like? Like when I say I do three days a week in this role, people literally kind of go, but you don't really do you. And I'm like, well, I actually, I try really hard to make sure that I do because I think it's in, important that people see that with the right help and resources and adequate planning, you can you can kind of do that. Now the kids are getting a bit older, it's a bit easier, but you know, I can't be looking after a six-month-old and also trying to write a report. The two things don't, so it has to be easily structured. That's not to say I'm perfect. I, of course, do pick you're, up. You're sounding emails. pretty organised to me. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't profess to be that. Yeah, but then I have I, I, a mum. I'm, I'm very I'm, light on the work-life balance yeah, front, but but then I have it. Yeah, but then I have a, a, a mum who lives really close. Mm. You know, there are times. You know, just in the evenings, we're all kind of. But I have because I've got a partner whose job is very all-encompassing with shift work and all that kind of stuff that it kind of has to otherwise we would all but you have to make comp- well, well it's, to make it's support structures isn't it, isn't it? so yeah. you, you you build them in different ways you build them within work you yeah. build them with at exactly. home whether you know child manager and friends and family if you yeah. have it so you know you have to do that and it's a constant juggling act I think I think that's so now the podcast has literally just become about me and Michelle talking about how we juggle yeah. all these things but it's important to get it out there but, as well but, it, but okay, to, let's go so back, let's back to, bring to, us back on to, to first, first principles <laughs> where, where at first sight the Carrie Gracie 
case seems to have been a really important victory for gender pay equality and an important signal and, and rallying call for the, for for union union involvement in the workplace actually its greater importance is probably or potentially or the organizing consequences which 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 as you said becky makes unions more relevant to a workforce which is increasingly atomized increasingly precarious Increasingly feminised in the sense of more women at work than men in, in in the country, only just, but nevertheless, nevertheless, and yet they are underrepresented in union structures, and therefore the agenda is skewed in a particular direction. And if we don't correct that imbalance, then we're stuffed fundamentally because we don't look relevant. We're not as effective. We're not talking to the things that really matter to 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 our, to our members. So, so the question, that's the challenge. Well, and so the question is, what's next for the NUJ on this, then, Michelle? So for me, it's very much, I mean, the, the last, I mean, I came back of my maternity leave in September and it was really, this was at the boiling point, the work at the BBC. So I've been massively involved in that ever since. And it just seems to me to have big potential. So I took a, a really long kind of um, action plan motion to our delegate meeting in April, which is a whole range of different kind of practical things that we're rolling out to our chapels and structures to get them engaged on this issue precisely because of the organising dividend but also to just attract a whole load of new potential recruits who can energise the union and make us as relevant as we can possibly be on this issue but you know whether it's equal pay or the gender pay gap or fighting to to stop harassment in a workplace or looking at workloads it's 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 sometimes just about finding what is that particular issue that's going to set people alight and get them engaged and enthusiastic and that you can harness all of that energy collectively because I think that's what makes the difference so in some places we're using it as a kind of push to get you know to boost membership with a view to trying to get a recognition deal so you know in the places where we haven't got any kind of mechanism at the moment um, in others it's about actually trying to boost our density because it's pretty weak and you know this is an opportunity for us to strengthen our core in a place where in other circumstances we wouldn't pass the recognition bar so I think I've been surprised by how many different types of people it speaks to about you know amongst our rep space our activists and also our officials so so for us it's about trying to put some of that work in practice and trying to be a bit systematic and trying to work our way through different companies but also doing it in a manageable way because you know we haven't done as many equal pay surveys for example in the last few months just because the sheer dealing with the workload that's been generated on on this this part of the BBC you know mm. 181 cases mm. is not Huge. easy to kind yeah. of manage in, in in that kind of you know I've been doing loads of personal casework as well you know we've been short-staffed uh, of late so there are some practical challenges that I think well actually there's no point starting it off in in all of these places too because we, we won't meet people's expectations yeah. so it's a little bit about trying to balance you know a pragmatic approach with trying to crack on with the work but that is starting and I think we'll we'll have a lot of success with that. Well, I mean, the, the energy is palpable, so it's not going to be an easy easy journey, but I'm sure that there will be success at the at the end of it. I like your optimism. Michelle, thank you ever so much. Thanks, Michelle. My pleasure. Thanks for coming to be NEJ. <laughs> well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Michelle. I'm not quite sure how you all have found it. Um, encouraging, interesting, informative, uh, enraging, challenging... On this or any other issue, of course, we would love to have your views. We need you to be part of the discussion to make sure the podcast stays as lively and as relevant as possible. You can email us at info at unions21.org. 
www.unionsupporter.org.uk. You can see what's going on across the Unions 21 network, as it were, by visiting our website, www.unions21.org.uk, where you can download and listen to the rest of our podcasts as well. If you want to find out more about the NUJ's campaign on equal pay and the gender pay gap, uh, visit www.nuj.org.uk forward slash campaigns. Becky and I will be back with uh, what will be the final episode in this second series of the Unions 21 podcasts next week. And we'll also have some exciting news about what we're doing podcasting-wise over the summer for your further listening pleasure, as they say. So until then, this is me, Simon Sapper, saying thanks for listening and goodbye. Unions 21 podcast was presented by Simon Sapper and Becky Wright. Production assistant was Henry Skews. It was a Makes You Think production.